Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Just a warning. This episode contains distressing details and strong language because history does sometimes. It's one of the most shared and distributed photographs when it comes to Canadian residential schools. Two black and white pictures, taken years apart, featuring the same child with a title that reads, Before and After. I want to take a moment and describe those pictures for you, because even if you've seen them, you may not have noticed what's in the details. And the details are very important. In the first picture, the before, a young Indigenous boy stands on a fur in what looks like traditional clothing. He wears moccasins and what appears to be leather pants with prominent diagonal stitching up the legs. Over his pants, he wears a piece of fabric with a large embroidered flower in the center. Two smaller flowers outlined in beading are sewn onto either side. On top, he wears a leather tunic that has beads sewn up the sleeves and around the neck. He wears a bootlace tie. It's a thin piece of leather or ribbon tied in a knot with a bead or stone at its center. And right below his collar lay eight strings of large, light-colored beads that loop from one shoulder to the other and continue down to his midsection. His long, dark hair is braided into two plaits on either side of his head, and the lower section of his braids are wrapped with what looks like fur. A tuft of his hair at the front and center of his head is short and stands straight up, and he has two strands of beads that are clipped or braided to the right side of his hair. In the other picture, the after, he looks a few years older. He is noticeably taller as he stands posed, with his hand on his left hip, while his right hand rests near a potted plant on the edge of a half wall. He is wearing European-styled, plain dark-colored trousers that have a straight hem at the ankles. His dark leather lace-up shoes catch the light in the photo. The coat he wears matches his pants. It's a military-inspired jacket with four bands of fabric that are clasped together up to his high collar. His hair is cut short to his head, and behind him on the left, on the low wall, sits a boy's cap. In both the photos, He is expressionless. At the time they were taken, the images were used in the Dominion of Canada's 1897 Indian Affairs Report as a piece of propaganda to illustrate the strengths and benefits of residential and industrial schools. Today it's used to show the opposite, as evidence of the genocide perpetrated by both Canadian church and state. But are these two pictures really a before and after? And more importantly, why, despite their popularity, do we still know so little about the boy in the picture? 
This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Phelan. Hey, Leah. So I'm just going to share my screen with you. Okay. Oh, that's a lot of tabs, Leah. <laughs> I'm I'm learning from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. So have you ever seen these pictures here? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I know this picture. I've seen it plenty of times. It's the very famous before and after of a little boy at residential school. And I know we're going to use the term school here, which is not what these places were. Let's get that out of the way right away. These places were not for education. They were created to assimilate and destroy Indigenous people and our cultures. So while we might use the word school here, these places were not schools. They were not schools. Um, Do you know anything about the boy in the picture? Um, Not much, uh, but I do know that his picture is used a lot when people want to talk about these institutions. Um, I see it on websites, covers of books, things like that. And, you know, I'm I'm certain his parents did not give consent for his image to be used. Oh, yeah, I think that's for certain. And that's really something to think about since you could argue that these pictures have become the poster for industrial and residential institutions. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I didn't know anything about him either because in a lot of places that circulate this photo on Online, you know, he has no name. He's not credited. Right. It just says a young child before and after residential school. And even if they write a name or anything underneath it, it says it's either from the Saskatchewan archives or maybe from the Department of Indian Affairs. So it's very unclear. Like so many of our records when it comes to these places. So I took it upon myself to go on a little fact finding mission to figure out what this child's name was the dates that these photos were taken, where he's from, and what these very famous images can tell us. And let me tell you, after I did that, I had even more questions. Okay, well, that's good, though, because, I mean, this picture, it is everywhere, and so this boy deserves to be named, to be recognized. So I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, I'm glad we're doing it, too. So the first place I started was just, you know, Google image search. I searched to see if there were more than just two pictures of this young boy. I thought... Maybe if there was another one when he was much older, maybe it would have more information attached, but sadly I couldn't find that. What I did find was even more conflicting information and dates. You know, in some places, this picture is dated as being from 1874. In others, it says 1896. Mm -hmm. And then in others, it says 1897. So it was very confusing. But I finally found that the original pictures were printed in 1897 in the annual report from the Department of Indian Affairs. The report is 925 pages. That sounds like really fun reading, Leah. Um, It was a blast. (laughs) Okay. uh, What did the report tell you? So the pictures in the report are the same pictures that we're all used to seeing, but they're not side by side. They're each printed on a separate page. And they are the first things that you will read in this very enormous report. Okay, so these pictures were treated as important. Yeah, and each has a caption at the top. Okay, so Phelan, I'm going to give it to you. Can you read what it says at the top of the before picture? Okay. Thomas Moore, as he appeared when admitted to the Regina Indian Industrial School. Okay, and now the after picture for us, please. Thomas Moore, after tuition at the Regina Indian Industrial School. Okay, so we have his name. At least that's what we think was his name, Thomas Moore. Mm -hmm. And we know that he went to the Regina Industrial School. Did did they write anything else about him? I couldn't find anything else. I hit a dead end. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised. 
by that. Really? Frankly. I was surprised because he starts the report and it is 925 pages. Mm. There's a lot in there. But I could not find his name again. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't stop looking. You know, I just hit a dead end in that report. What I did learn was that the Regina Industrial School in particular was really trying to convince the government that it was worth the money. And that might be why they took these photos of little Thomas. All through this government report, the Department of Indian Affairs is trying to make the case that industrial schools and residential schools are working well. And at the time, I think they thought these two pictures made it look like the schools were a huge success. Uh, yeah, and it really says something that they thought taking these pictures would paint them in a good light. I know. The Regina Industrial School opened its doors in 1891. And it was part of a larger colonial project that was happening in Canada. Industrial schools focused on labor, as in the children were supposed to learn a trade and then exit the school and be integrated into so-called, you know, Canadian society. This was all part of this settler colonialism that the Canadian government and the churches actively practiced. The goal of settler colonialism was to eventually eliminate the indigenous populations physically and culturally, through assimilation into the settler population. Still here, mother No. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're keeping it in. <laughs> I said mother fudgers. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report says that many settler colonies took steps to separate children from their parents while providing them with some measure of a Western education usually with the goal of assimilating the children into a subordinate role within colonial society. Right. This was also happening to Indigenous people while the U.S. was forming at this you know, same time, and of course here, before Canada was even Canada. Now, these institutions known as industrial schools were a bit different from the institutions we call residential schools. These places were based on the British industrial schools, which were strict boarding schools that focused on work and were designed for what they considered as vagrant, poor or troubled children. And if I have to summarize everything I read about them, I feel like they were jail for kids. Mm -hmm. And the difference between boarding schools and the industrial schools, it was really not distinguishable. They were very similar. By 1923, the industrial model fell away and these schools were also strapped for cash. The government wanted these institutions, but they wanted them on the cheap. So much of the time, children would work the land, take care of livestock, make clothing. Basically, they did everything to ensure the day-to-day -day operations of these places. Much of the time, half of their day was working and the other half was learning. Learning. I hope you can hear my air quotes there. Oh, yes, I can, no, yeah, I can hear I them. They're quite pronounced. Yeah, and the work was also really gendered. Yeah, meaning the boys learned agriculture and artisanal trades while girls were trained for domestic work. Yeah, I'm going to read a snippet from a report from the first principal of the Regina Industrial School. Ooh, his name was Rev. I jumped, I jumped <laughs> yeah, on that I, one right away. I, I know, right? <laughs> Let's, let me say his name and then okay. you can boo. <clears throat> a Reverend Angus J. McLeod. Boo. Okay, that's perfect. Okay. So just listen to the amount of things the students were forced to build by year two of this place. So they did this in two years, little children. He writes that the students put up a wire fence, had planted four acres of potatoes and vegetables, nine acres of wheat, 19 acres of oats, 27 acres of mixed hay, as well as some barley, 
rye, and millet. Eight boys in carpentry had built a three-truss bridge over the Wiscana, an ice house, a root cellar, a laundry, and a building that housed a carpentry shop, a paint shop, a shoe shop, and bedrooms for employees. So in the first two years there, it was likely Thomas worked with other children to build a lot of what was described there. He like literally built the walls around him that held him. So it wasn't a school. It's a work camp. Completely. In that first year, many children tried to escape and run away. And unfortunately, every single one of them was found and forced back. In its first six years of operations, an average of around eight children died each year at the Regina Indian Industrial School. While the industrial school was in operation, physical, sexual, and mental abuse was rampant, the children were also forced to endure everything from lack of proper clothing to bedding to inadequate shelter and poor nutrition, which led to illnesses like smallpox and tuberculosis. These schools were a key factor in the transmission of TB, tuberculosis, in Indigenous communities. Kids would contract it at school, bring it home to their communities, and then infected children would go back to schools, reinfecting the school. The first residential school was the Mohawk Institute near Brantford, Ontario, which opened in 1834. And not fun fact, that's where my family went. The Mohawk Institute, the mush hole... The searches just started there recently. I don't know what they're doing now because the ground is probably almost frozen. That's being treated as a criminal investigation. It's a crime scene, but not all of the schools are. I have all kinds of feelings about why those words aren't used, why we don't use crime scene, why our deaths aren't considered. It just seems like there's a separation, and I I wish we could start to take that separation out of the wording when we talk about these things. Because that's generally regarded as one of the worst things that could ever happen, right? The death of a child. And it just, it feels like there's there's still this disconnect in a lot of people's minds about the bodies of Indigenous children. Absolutely. It's taken too long. You know, it's still taking too long. But, you know, as the saying goes, the truth always comes out. And I believe it will. In case that you think this was all in the past, the last residential school would close more than 150 years later in 1996 in Saskatchewan. But what else did you find out about Thomas? Well, I was starting to get worried because I couldn't find any more. Again, I am not surprised by this. I did find an article, though, which was in the Regina Leader Post, and it's about a filmmaker by the name of Louise Big Eagle. She's from Ocean Man, First Nation, and she now lives in Regina, Saskatchewan. She made a short documentary about Thomas called I Am a Boy. I was very happy to find her, obviously. And anyway, a couple of years ago, Louise had the very same questions about this picture as we did. And the first time I saw these images of Thomas, I was in university and I was actually doing a paper on residential schools. And I, of course, was exploring the Internet. I was, you know, Googling it, um, residential schools. And then his images were the ones that popped up. And those, you know, those pictures just resonate with you. They stay with you. They really do. So where did Louise go from there after she saw the pictures? Well, she was able to take the research further because of a job that she got with the Regina Indian Industrial Media Project, R-I-I-S, or RISE for short. It's described as being formed as a community healing multimedia resource for the Regina Indian Industrial School legacy, funded by the United Church of Canada. Here's Louise again describing how her work there led her to making the documentary. 
I was actually being a social media manager for Rise Media Project with Janine Windolf and the late Trudy Stewart. At that time, they were doing research for that school and because there was a graveyard that was found just outside Regina here off Pinky Road. So they were kind of doing research of who was buried there, when they were buried there. They were making those connections and research, and they were doing also a documentary on that as well. And then they just came to me one day and said, hey, we have an idea. We want you to make your own documentary. Like, do you have any ideas of what you want to do? We'll support you. We'll be your mentors. We'll guide you. We'll help you. But you're the director. You're going to be, like, the writer. And then I knew right away that I wanted to do a documentary on residential schools because my parents were residential school survivors. So I just kind of wanted to share that story. So Louise wanted to make a film on residential schools to tell that story because she has a personal connection to those places. What year was this? So she made the documentary in 2015, and in her research, she learned a lot more about Thomas. We found out his name was Thomas Markisic, and he went to residential school, of course, August 26, 1891, and he was eight years old at the time. And eight years old, I was a little bit older to go to schools. A lot of people would go at four, six years old. So we found out that his his dad was a Desjardins and his mom was a Kesick, a Moore Kesick. Okay, wow. So his full name was Thomas Moore Kesick. That that already makes him feel more whole to me. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I was so happy to hear that. But he was actually registered as number 22 at the school because he was the 22nd child to be enrolled. And we can't actually be sure that they called him by any name at all because at times in these institutions, they just referred to the kids as numbers, which is so heartbreaking. We also don't know if he had another name, a non-English one, maybe in his maternal language of Anishinaabe Moen. Hmm. I hope that if the name he used was Tom or Thomas that they called him Tom, but we just don't know. His parents' names were recorded as Paul Desjardins Sr. and Hannah Moore Kesick, and three of their children, Samuel, Julia, and little Thomas, went to the Regina Indian Industrial School. Like Louise said, when Thomas arrived on August 26, 1891, he was just eight years old, and he and his family were from Muscopeding Soto First Nation, which was a big surprise to her. Here she is again. And then we found out he was from Muscopeding, which is like not very far from here, from Regina. And that just kind of blew our minds. We're just like, what? He's from here. He's from Saskatchewan. His home reserve is not even from far from here. Like, how do we not know this? So she didn't suspect that he was from Saskatchewan at all. No, she had no idea that he was a child that, you know, lived not very far away from where she was doing this research. Right. Yeah. And I know at the time, a lot of children would be sent far from their families so that it would be harder for them to run away to try to get home. But that wasn't always the case. Um, and so what what happened to Thomas? So what happened to Thomas Morkisic was that when he was about 12 years old, he contracted um, tuberculosis once he contracted it, he was sent home, and that's where he, he died, which to me, it's as sad as it is, I thank goodness that he was sent home so he can be with his family at that time. I know a lot of 
children in residential school when they contracted tuberculosis, they died in those schools, and I'm sure they died, you know, by themselves, alone in in the bed. So, like I said, as sad as it is, I'm thankful that he was able to go home. And to me, I kind of sat there after, and I and I wondered, like, if he didn't go to these schools, would he have actually contracted tuberculosis and died at such a young age? Or what could have happened if he didn't go to these schools? Like, would he have lived long to be an old man, you know, had his own children? You just think more in depth of about this boy. So, little Thomas Morkisik, like so many other children, he didn't survive the Regina Indian Industrial School. And at the time of this recording, the number of children that have been found, it's in the thousands, and, and that number keeps climbing. Yeah. When my sister worked at the residential school, when she worked at the Mohawk Institute, she would take people on tours through that school. And she was working there prior to Truth and Reconciliation Commission, prior to people even knowing that residential schools were a thing. Or, I mean, you know, some people still don't know. Some people want to deny that this happened. And she would take people through the building and show them the building and what she started doing because she just couldn't get it. She couldn't get through to people. They wanted to deny it so much, so much that she would show people pictures of my niece, Vivian, when she was four. And she would start the tour and she would say, this is my daughter, Vivian. And she would show everyone and they'd go, oh. And then she'd go, if I had my daughter while this place was running, there is a very good chance that she would be taken and have to go to school here. And that's the only way that she could get them to recognize us as human beings. Like, that's all we're fighting for. That's all, like, it is so exhausting to have to continue to fight to be seen as human, to be valued as a human being. And so, yeah, he, he, was, he was a human being. He was a human being. Mm-hmm. And so little. You know, when you go back and look at his age and the dates, it means that that first photo, that before photo, was most likely taken in his first year away from home in 1891 at age eight. Right. I remember 1891 was the year the Regina Industrial School was opened, right? Exactly. And then so the after picture, we can estimate that that was probably taken about two or three years later when he was 10 or 11. So that would place the photo date as being taken between 1893 and 1895. I know this is a lot of dates, but the reason I'm talking about it is because 1895 would be the last possible year it could have been taken because we now know he was sent home with TB around age 12 and he passed away shortly after that. His pictures were printed in this Department of Indian Affairs report in 1897. But by that time, he had already passed. Yeah. So if all the dates that we have are correct, his parents, Paul Desjardins and Hannah Morkisik, had already buried Thomas a year or two before he would become the face of residential schools. That is so disgusting. Um, but I doubt the Department of Indian Affairs knew or, frankly, even cared I have to be honest, I was so taken aback when I kind of did that math. Um, and then I realized the same thing as you. Of course, of course, they didn't care. It, he was really a propaganda tool. Mm-hmm. And 
They knew no one would inquire about this boy. The people reading this report, government officials, were not going to go back to the school and go, we'd love to see this shining example of colonialism. You know, like they didn't really care either. So this terrible revelation opened up a whole set of other questions. And I feel like the way you're looking at me right now, you already know the question that came up for me, don't you? (laughs) I'm going to take a guess. Are these pictures even real? Because the longer you look at them, the more questions that they bring up for me. And like, why would we take the Department of Indian Affairs in the 1890s word for anything, That's you know, right. on anything factual. Exactly. We all look at this picture, and by we, I mean most of the public who's not used to deciphering historical photos, And we go, oh, my gosh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. Look, he's in the clothes that he probably arrived at school in. And then the school put him in these Western-looking other clothes, and that's terrible. But that's assuming he arrived at school looking like that. More on that after the break. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's just quickly review here. We have a very famous picture that has been connected to a residential school. It has been labeled as before and after. The name Louise Big Eagle found for the little boy in the picture is Thomas Moore Kiesick, and he was from Muscopeding Soto First Nation. He became the 22nd child to be enrolled at the Regina Indian Industrial School when it opened its horrible doors in 1891 in Saskatchewan. He spent around four or five years there, and it was during this time that these two pictures were taken. By age 12, he was sick with TB, and he was sent home where he passed away. We assume in about the year 1895. These photos were then published in a Department of Indian Affairs report that came out in 1897 and were used to show the beneficial effects of colonialism on Indigenous children, despite the fact that Thomas had already passed away and had been killed by the effects of colonialism. Is that everything? Yep. That's fun, fun, fun summary. But, you know, of course, there's still this lingering question. Are these pictures really a before and after? Mm -hmm. And for the answer to that question, I called up Paul (laughs) Sisequasis. And I'm like literally bouncing in my chair. I love Paul. Um, (laughs) Paul is a writer and a journalist and for years has been working on the Indigenous Archival Photo Project, an online and physical archive of Indigenous photos that he has curated. Um, He really understands the history surrounding Indigenous people in photographs like these ones of Tom. Yes. And right away, he told me how connected he is to these photos. I'm interested in this photo, firstly, because it was taken at the Regina Industrial School, which is the same school my great-great-grandfather went to at exactly the same time that Thomas More Kiesick would have been there. So they may have even known each other. Uh, as we know now, Thomas More Kiesick, uh died of tuberculosis at a young age. So uh, he wasn't, sadly, wasn't around long, as a lot of children did at, at that industrial school. My great-great-grandfather, fortunately, came home healthy and uh, alive, but uh, he was there at the exactly same time. That is really something that, that Paul's great-great-grandfather 
was also sent to the industrial school at the same time. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, the more I talk to Paul, I learned that from what he knows about this kind of photography, these images were completely set up. Well, firstly, we should keep in mind that it's obviously staged. Uh, Thomas Marchesic has obviously been dressed up on both images. Secondly, that is propaganda. And I use that word deliberately. It's propaganda to show... Uh, the benefits of industrial school. So you have this before image of Thomas uh, Kizik in uh, quote-unquote native dress, regalia, if you will. And then you have this after photo where he's dressed up as this quote-unquote civilized uh, student with uh, you know a really kind of Edwardian kind of background to it. And for me, when I look at this photo from a contemporary perspective, I see both sides as being... Uh, completely artificial. The indigenous side supposedly uh, has him also holding a small gun, which symbolically uh, we can question why the photographer placed that in his hand. Uh, Was it to indicate that uh, without the civilizing influence of residential schools, industrial schools, small Indian boys, as innocent as they may seem, grow up to be dangerous? Or, you know, that idea of the uh, wild Indian. And I think when we see that him dressed like that, uh, holding that revolver. It's obviously staged, it's propped. It's a little pistol. It's not a real, I think it's a toy one, but it's a pistol nonetheless. So it is very symbolic. Honestly, I can say I didn't recognize that that was a gun for a while. I thought maybe it was a wooden toy, but no, these nightmare people made him hold a gun. I mean, I, I realize I couldn't tell because when you look in the picture, it's pointing down. Yeah, and, and Thomas looks like, why have you given this to me? Like, maybe that's why he's holding it really delicately, really gingerly. Um, but they would want him to hold that, right? To make him to make him look dangerous, to make him look like a threat. Exactly. You know, when Paul mentioned the gun, I started really zooming in on every detail of this picture. Mm-hmm. In the before picture, you will see that underneath the quote-unquote traditional clothing he's wearing is a plaid button-up shirt. And I'm going to assume that's probably the shirt he walked into this institution wearing. Here's Paul again. I really doubt Thomas Morkizik would have dressed even in that quote-unquote native fashion that we see in that one side of that photo. Uh, Obviously, he was dressed up to look quote-unquote savage as opposed to being quote-unquote civilized. And then on the other side of the photo, we just see this, what is supposed to be, I guess, the goal of this educational process, which is, as we know, is to take the Indian out of the Indian. But in both cases, it's an artificial construct, and it is not a reflection of Thomas Morkizik, I don't think, or how he would have looked in his normal day-to-day dress. And it reflects, I think, this idea that the quote-unquote Indian was either uncivilized and wild or was civilized and assimilated. And it just denies our humor. It denies our flexibility as people. It denies our ability to adapt. It it just denies all those things and frames us as being either this or that with no movement in between. It kind of just freezes us, which, which is a problem with a lot of photography from that period. So there's a good probability that those before photos were not his clothes, but we can't say that for certain. Yeah, we can't say that for certain, but... When you look at the industrial school's records, the church wrote that Thomas already knew the English alphabet and that he was a Protestant. 
There's an article by Miranda Brady and Emily Hiltz that we will link to on our website, and they found that Thomas was recorded attending another school before he attended the Regina Industrial School. Um, This other school was called Lakes End, but then I couldn't tell if it was a residential school he went to or what it was. Right. So I emailed you. (laughs) And I got to be in my bonnet about it because I wear a bonnet occasionally. (laughs) Of course. Picture that. So I found an article in the 2018 Presbyterian Connection newspaper that says, Muscopeding, later known as Lakes End Residential School, Saskatchewan, opened in 1888. Uh Aha. Yeah. So that's our proof. Yes. That is our proof that this little boy, little Thomas, most definitely would not have been rolling up to the doors of his now second residential school in traditional clothing. Yes. That wouldn't have been allowed. He probably was dressed for farm work or something like that. Here's my other thought. Yeah. Because I was thinking the only thing that we can really say about this picture is that he has long hair in one and short hair in the other. But since they cut children's hair in residential school, can we even say that his hair is his hair in the first one? Is it possible that they put him in a wig? I think that is a possibility. They dressed him up in all of the other way, right? I, I'm, I'm almost speechless now that I'm thinking about that. Because they cut everyone's hair. And we would know that that was typical practice of these places, of residential schools and industrial schools. They would cut the kids' hair to conform to, you know, concepts of Western identity. But they would also cut their hair as punishment as a way of humiliating them. There are historians and academics that have pointed out that the clothing he's wearing in the first picture would be at the time typically worn by a girl because of the style of the beading and embroidery. Yeah, because when I saw this photo again today, I had that feeling. It looks off. It looks staged. But I'm not from that community, so I'm not familiar with the clothing and the regalia. Uh, But something about the outfit, there's something that just looks a little off to me. I could be wrong. Yeah, and you know, that was really common at this time when you're talking about photographs. When you're looking at any photographs of Indigenous people in the early 1800s, you know, really at the time of the camera's invention into the early, mid-1900s sometimes, you have to question. Exactly. We have to ask, who took the picture and why? What was this used for? And are these things and clothing in the photo, are these their things? It reminds me of the work of Edward Curtis, who staged photos of Indigenous people in the early 1900s in a similar way. And that's so dangerous because those representations become frozen in time and they become a testament to how we look, how we were supposed to look, but it's all fake. It's all made up. It's so interesting. You bring up Edward Curtis, this this early kind of ethnographer, they called him. <laughs> um, you know, he went all over North America, really, to document um, Indigenous people. And the complication is a lot of those photos were staged. Some of them weren't. And some of the nations that those people came from are really grateful that they have this documentation because just of, you know, colonialism. Mm -hmm. So it just gets so complicated. Yeah. I just think that we need to do exactly what we do today when we look at pictures on social media. Like, ask, what filter are they using? And is that even their house they took this in? Because it doesn't look real, you know? We seem to be able to spot that stuff really easily today. 
that's because we've been trained to do it. Like we, mm-hmm. we're trained to question in today's day and age. I think we need to do the same for images back then. <laughs> that, right? Like, yes, that makes so much sense. We need to look at historical images as we look at Instagram. Um, you know, are those... <laughs> With with Are suspicion, those her eyelashes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she has like doe ears. <laughs> yeah, you know, like all of those fakey Instagram things. Um, so Paul and I talked about this era of photography when it came to images of Indigenous people, and what was really interesting to me is he references the term manifest destiny, which was used mostly in the U.S., but you know they brought it up to Canada too. And at the time, it was when people believed that European culture and idealism was preordained by God. So in this ideology, God wanted Europeans to take over all of North America, meaning to take over indigenous land, people and culture. So here's Paul explaining how this manifest destiny extended to photography at this time. We have to recognize that the camera, which came into more common use in the 1860s, right after the American Civil War, was really a manifest camera. It was part and parcel of the manifest destiny of uh, the opening of the West, of the uh, subjugation of Native Americans. So even today, we are still dealing with the fallout from these images. Uh, people's idea of Native Americans are still shaped by these images that were taken during the height of what I would call manifest camera. And it's really something we're always trying to resist and say that's not who we are. We are contemporary. We are evolving. We have always been that way. And I think today in the work of contemporary Indigenous photographers, we're seeing a new generation of our own inner gaze challenging these images, often using these images satirically or with humor, but just playing with this uh, outsider's gaze on the Native American, which is so often fraught with either romanticization or the tragic kind of framing. And it's, we're so much more than that. And we are, I think we are now starting to reshape and present our own images, which is uh, part of a, a visual reclamation and a visual liberation, if you will, from these old tropes that are, exist about us. Right. So even in 1891, they were still trying to freeze Indigenous people in a previous time. They tried to make this little boy uh, a historic wax figure when he was anything but. Mm-hmm. I think, too, if we if we take the picture at face value, it really robs him of who he actually was. So we have to think of it critically in that. And I think with respect to the life of Thomas More Kiesick, we have to see him not as he's framed within these photos and not as a victim, but as someone who lived, had their own life, had family, had kinship, has relatives who are still alive today. And it's really important that we don't divorce that image from the fact that he was a living, breathing human being. Yes, exactly. It's pictures like this one of Thomas that get shared with no information and then just disseminated over and over again that's really motivated Paul to start the Indigenous Archival Photo Project. The Indigenous Archival Photo Project began around uh, seven or eight years ago. The inspiration for it was my uh, late mother, who was a residential school survivor from St. Michael's Residential School in Saskatchewan. And she had made a comment that, as a witness, that while well, we were hearing a lot of the, uh, you know, native things that, that we all know and recognize now that took place in residential schools, we weren't hearing about the strength and resilience of people in the communities that kept our language, our cultures, our kinships alive. So I began the photo project 
basically looking for photographic evidence to counter the kind of framing of indigenous peoples as just being victims or uh, being uh, hostage to the residential school systems and that there was an alternative which was the strength and resilience of the communities. So I, I began to research and look for these photos and as I dug deeper I found more and more of them. It became a social media project and posting them online, people began to recognize themselves or their aunties, their uncles. So it began a whole narrative of, I guess, visual reclamation, which was really quite, quite awesome. The other important thing that happens, I think, is many of these photos are, of course, in archival collections, historical societies, museums, galleries. And part of the intent of the project is to liberate them, if you will, from these institutions and to make them accessible to people in the community. And so he's doing this, you know, visual reclamation, as he puts it. And some of the pictures he finds have names. Some don't. Some are from Indigenous photographers, when you get into more recent history that have taken the photographs. Mm -hmm. So he really does a lot of work to try and really make these pictures whole again. And I'm generally uh, looking for photographers who had some sort of relationship with the communities or were trusted within the communities, because those are the kind of photographs that I'm most interested in. In those cases, the names are usually there, often misspelled, because often, you know, the photographer is just writing it down and would just do it phonetically. So often misspelled, but often the names and places are there. When you start to look... uh say, early 50s and earlier than that, 1940s. And even in mainstream magazines, newspapers, it would just say an Inuit man or an Indian woman. They didn't bother naming the individuals at all. And that was just, that's reflective of the attitudes of the time and the fact that it just wasn't deemed important. For our audience, you can follow Paul on social media, and I highly recommend you do. We will link to his work in the description of the show. And he posts something nearly every day, and it's always so fascinating. I love watching the comments on Paul's social media because he'll often ask, um, you know, does anyone know this man in this photo? And then you'll see members of the community go, oh, my God, isn't that Uncle so-and-so? And then people are like, oh, my God, that is Uncle so-and-so. And that's, you know, this person and, and that younger kid down there. That's me. You know, sometimes you see people find themselves and it's super wild, you know, because for so long, Indigenous people haven't been in charge of our image. It's been distorted and manipulated. And so it feels amazing to see a small part of colonization being undone like that. It is. I mean, it's truly amazing. And because he's been doing this for so long now, I asked him, I just wanted to know, you know, what was his favorite picture from the project? Uh, that's, that is a difficult question. Yeah. Um, I would say, I think one photo that has resonated with other people so much on social media is a photo that was taken by, uh, an amateur photographer named Rennie Fumilo, who I had the uh, honor to interview just shortly before his passing a few years ago. And he took a picture of these Denny children, all of whom are named, and they're all standing, uh, beside each other and they're all dressed up in different things that they put on. Uh, one has obviously her mom's high heels on or something. And they're all just laughing. And it's just uh, such a spontaneous expression of joy from these children. And the photo was taken uh, in the late 1960s. And they're just all laughing in various stages of laughing or smiling. And you just see the joy in them. And you see uh, their just their love of that moment. And you also see their comfort with, with, uh, with the photographer. So that one uh, resonates for me. 
If you are a residential school survivor and you need support, please call the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419 or visit nctr.ca for more information. The Secret Life of Canada was recorded both in Montreal, Jojitge, on the unceded traditional territory of the Ganyakahaga. And in Toronto, on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger, story editing by Yvette Nolan, and mixing and sound design by Justin T. Lee. Special thanks to Miranda Brady, Emily Hiltz, and the senior media librarian of the CBC Reference Library, Kate Zeman. Our logo is by Badawogan Illustration and Design. Our digital producer is Roshni Nair, senior producer is Tina Verma, and Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. To learn more about the Indigenous Archival Photo Project and to see Louise Big Eagle's documentary, I Am a Boy, you can visit our website at cbc.ca slash radio slash Secret Life of Canada. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.